Hello Woodworms, I'm Ray Defterios and this is the Hand Tool Book Review, the podcast for people who love woodwork and love reading about woodworking too. Before we begin today's episode, a big shout out to Robert Bullock and Max Dienbock. Thank you both very much for supporting the show via Patreon. The financial support for the show is really appreciated in these difficult times and I know that many people are facing real hardship right now and whenever anyone makes a commitment to support the show, I know that there are other competing needs for your dollars, so I really appreciate it. However, over and above the financial, Patreon support is like emails from listeners. It really helps keep me motivated to put out episodes when I know that you're enjoying them. On to today's book. What the world really needs from me right now is a review of a workbench book. As I sit down at my desk and write the script, I'm struggling to keep a straight face. As you know, I've recently reviewed three of Christopher Shaw's books on workbenches, both high and low. In a series of podcasts that is now 26 episodes, and by the way, congratulations to the patrons and listeners for giving me the support and encouragement to get here, I decided that I'm now going to do my fourth workbench book review by Chris. So nearly one in six of all my reviews will now be on Christopher Schwarz's workbench books. WTF In my defence, I did not know he was going to get out the anarchist's workbench so quickly. I didn't know it was going to be free to download. And based on that, I think it was worth reviewing the book and making you aware of a fantastic free resource if you're looking at building a workbench. They're offering a physical copy if you're interested, which is $27.00 and it's available for pre-order now. Apparently it's going to be a limited run, so if you're interested, get your order in soon. I bought one, and a few other books at the same time. For me, visiting their website is like going to a casino. I know I'm coming away poorer, even if I win. The electronic version is a full version. It's not stripped down in any way, so I really feel this is an excellent resource if you're on a limited budget, or if you prefer the electronic format. By the way, the file is in a PDF format, so if any of you are interested, I've converted it to a Kindle format, and to be honest, the conversion's not ideal. The formatting and the tables in the PDF version are much better. But if you have no other way to read, or perhaps you like to use your Kindle because like me, the PDF is just impossibly small on a phone, drop me an email and I'll send you a link to the version I've created. The book is different in a way from what has gone before, in that it focuses on building Chris's workbench, with all the tips and tricks he has learned over the past few decades. It's a book about a single workbench, the perfect workbench. Well, except it's got a whole bunch of other workbenches in it, and history, and construction notes. It's also got some interesting personal information about Chris. Until I'd read this book, I was not aware that Chris did not have the rights to workbenches design and theory to construction and use. In many ways, this book supersedes even the revised edition. While they're different, I definitely would not recommend owning both. Even if, like me, you buy the full-priced print version of the Anarchist's workbench for your library, in my opinion, it's better value for money to get the Anarchist's workbench. At a price tag of free, there's really no discussion. There are worse places to start your hand tool career than to take Chris's plans and follow them verbatim. And the book is a whole bunch more than plans. In many ways, this book is like an odyssey. You'll join Chris through all the steps, missteps, backtracks and lessons he has experienced over decades of workbench building. One of the joys of the book to me is that Chris segues into stories from his history. 
it's a good literary device to help keep you engaged. And yet at the same time, it makes the learnings easy to remember because you'll associate the message with an anecdote. As you might expect, we start with this first workbench of note, the $175 workbench, and move from there to the final evolutions of the form. And you get the theory, anecdotes and backgrounds of why he built it, what he knew, limitations he faced, and observations about the end product. It's sobering to think that Chris has been building benches since the 1990s, at a time when by his own admission there was a shortage of good hardware, all the way through to the present. And given that he did a number of roadshows where he would build a bench each weekend and raffle it, we're talking a lot of benches. Oh, and while we're talking about the 1990s, he references Scott Landis's workbench book as the only decent workbench book out at the time. I'm thinking of getting a copy of that book and then launching a second podcast. I'm going to call it Workbench Book Review. Seriously, it's going to be a while before I review that book. I've only heard good things about it, but I figure we've done enough of them for now. One other thing that resonated with me in the book is Chris's personal philosophy of aesthetic anarchism. And let's drop the association with anarchism that Chris does by the end of the book. Let's also not seek a label of anti-consumerism or minimalism or any other movement as it were. Let's go forward talking about it, talking about doing it like Chris, lifetime quality with a healthy dose of pragmatism and a desire for everyone to create great stuff with their own hands. So building this bench and joining Chris on this journey will help you understand how his workbench design reflects his ideas about a more pleasant and just society, his approach of supporting small makers, doing quality work, and thinking about what you do. I think it's a journey worth following, and in a small way, it's touched my life. Recently, I decided to build a box for plain shavings to keep next to the fireplace. goes with my personal commitment to use plain shavings and shop offcuts to start fires, rather than using commercial fire lighters. In part, it's a result of people like Chris that have helped me to get to my own philosophies about waste, and e-commerce. I fight a daily battle with the monster of tool acquisition disorder, and my recent acquisition of some master saws from both Bob Rozieski and Eric Florip show that at least sometimes I lose. It's easy to keep consuming versus creating. However, I was gratified after taking the time to make a proper box when my son turned to me and asked who keeps the box when I'm dead, or if I plan on making another one so both boys can each have their own one. Apparently my daughter Gabby isn't included in the will, according to Ben. It's a simple box. If you followed me on Instagram, you'll see box, store pine, and BLO. There's no walnut, there's no French polish. But I'm proud of it, and I'm happy that I made it. While I've been influenced by many great woodworker philosophers like Joshua Klein, Gary Rogowski, Peter Korn, Chris's aesthetic anarchism has a special place in my heart. And Chris is definitely practicing what he preaches with the release of a world-class book that is free in its electronic format. I know of no other comparable example amongst authors I admire. So take some lessons from a master and build a workbench that never needs replacing. Use components and raw materials from small businesses where it's possible, your local mom-and-pop lumberyard, or someone worth supporting. And make furniture that is quality, and does not need to be replaced in a ruthless commercial cycle of make crap, break crap, replace crap, and aspire for more expensive crap.
Uh, those are my words, by the way. Chris is a little bit more eloquent. And on the small business side here, yeah, I'll segue to recommend Michael Schumacher of Schumacher Toolworks on Etsy. He's a regular guy struggling like many of us in these difficult times, but he's taking the time and effort to make some beautiful quality wood screws for your face vice. Surely supporting people like him, guys and gals in your own neck of the woods, is a better way to spend your cash than to support the big corporates. I'll leave that thought with you. I'm a reader, not a preacher, so I don't want to beat the concept to death. What wood should you use to make the bench? It's a topic that's probably overtraded. Chris's enthusiasm for solid, cheaper pound benches from locally sourced construction grade lumber is refreshingly different. I did find it interesting in this chapter to see his calculations on how much you pay for a finished bench, and it's a different way of looking at the subject. After he's covered off the material for the bench, Chris visits the five main forms of the workbench. The low staked bench, a timber frame bench, the one you might commonly refer to as a rabot, the panel workbench, a Nicholson, if you will, built-in workbenches, and cabinet makers' workbenches. This serves as an introduction, but Chris jumps in with both feet after that. There's a chapter called All the Mistakes, but I guess it would be fair to call it All the Learnings as well. The author's built a lot of benches, and I think that the value in this chapter is twofold. One, it squarely establishes his credentials as a person whose advice you can trust. I think it's safe to say that no recreational woodworker is ever going to build the volume of workbenches he has. And two, if there's a particular type of bench you're interested in, he covers what he considers are the pros and cons of the different types. He makes a good point. Cabinet maker, joiner, chair maker, small box maker, big furniture maker, dining room table maker, we all have different aspirations and different needs. A style of bench that suits me might not suit you. But I think there's enough information here to help steer your thinking in the right direction. There's everything in here from power tool workbenches to a portable milkman's workbench, and Rubo's and Nicholson's galore. A book by Chris would be glaringly incomplete without historical references, and plates of photos from exotic locations. I enjoyed tracing the history, some of which I knew, but some that's new to me, and I like the way he dispels some conventional myths. Here's a quick example. Remember that Roubaix that everyone is building? A.J. Roubaix's workbench from La Haute du 1774? I'll quote from the book. It's likely the most famous of what I call the timber frame benches, a workbench with a massive bench top on top of a base constructed using square mortise and tenon joints. Four square stretches join the four legs and usually support a shelf. But this French bench was not the first image of a timber frame bench, not by at least 200 years. We begin about 1565 in St. John's Church in the town of Gouda in the Netherlands. In the choir of the church was an altarpiece that shows the four carpentry trades. In one of the panels there's a workbench with unusual characteristics. The bench has six vertical legs that appear to be joined to the top with a lap dovetail joint. Only one pair of legs has a stretcher. There's a planing stop, holes for holdfasts, and pegs. That's an extract from the excellent chapter 5, before A.J. Roubaix. I'm not sure everyone needs 15 pages of the history of workbenches in their life, 
but I love the way that Chris blends what could be a dry historical examination. I think most people will learn an interesting fact or two. And let's be fair, if you were an author setting out to write the definitive workbench book, there had to be some history in it somewhere. Chris is certainly a fan of the historical record. What he definitely is not a fan of is knockdown workbenches and workbenches stuck together with hardware. He's got his reasons, and I think by the time you've worked through the chapter on the various joinery options, you may have come to share many of them. Later in the book is one of my favourite sections where Chris states that he likes to make pizza. He doesn't state that you can't buy pizza in a shop. And I won't spoil the context of the quote, but I think it applies to the joinery chapter. Chris will share his experiences with you, give you solid historical and practical reasons for how he got to them, and then encourage you to disobey him if you want to. It's the same when he talks about slab workbenches. It's clear that there are many advantages of them. If you've got a perfectly dry 8 foot by 2 foot slab lying around, by all means go for it. If however, like me, you have a limited number of strong friends, and an even smaller number of strong friends who are willing to move a slab top workbench, then perhaps you'll understand why he advocates a laminated top. At this point in the book you'll feel like we're getting close to the reveal, and you're not far off, but before we get into the anarchist workbench proper, we'll cover off work holding, for edges, ends and faces. There's a lot of relevant and updated coverage in here. I guess in many ways we live in the golden age of hand tool woodworking. This means that what he has written before is still relevant, You'll get to cover off all the usual suspects like holdfasts and crochets. And in addition, you might find a new historical example that maybe you found interesting but have never read about before. I'd either forgotten, never read, or missed the significance of how Joseph Moxon's bench screw evolved. I like a crochet, so it's an interesting idea, but I don't recall previously seeing the evolution through to the typical continental shoulder vise. I enjoy these kind of discoveries. And that part of my brain that I try and bottle away, the workbench modification angel or the new workbench devil, they both sat up and took immediate notice of this. But it's not just new historical discoveries. The coverage of vices has been expanded to include things that are current, such as the benchcrafted crisscross, and things as esoteric as the pros and cons of using a pattern maker's vice. Kirby, I know you're out there listening somewhere. There's a bit in there for you. And regardless of the author's view, I'm still very jealous of your find. I guess at some level we all want an Emmett pattern maker's vice. Dead man, dead woman, they're no longer getting the love they used to, but it was nice to see that the blacksmith forged planing stop is still on the shopping list. Tom Latani's work is a work of art. There are all the usual suspects in this chapter, and if you need a doghole pattern for your holdfasts, Chris obliges. You might differ on a few items. Chris uses a doe foot a lot and this influences his positions. Personally, I'm a big fan of the Fisher arrangement popularized by Joshua Klein, but that's also because I often use two wooden pegs to stabilize things laterally. Again, if you're stuck on a central planing stop, Chris isn't going to scream foul, but if you're new to the game and have no specific preference, there's a world of knowledge here that is made accessible in a very unbiased manner. Unless, of course, you want a knockdown workbench. I think I've mentioned that before. At 191 pages into a 335 page book, we've done some yards to get to the theory and history out the way. In a similar format to the previous anarchist books, or the expanded text of the joiner and cabinet maker, we now get into the meat of building the bench.
First off, we get an overview of the design. 5 inch thick top, 8 foot long, 22 inches across. Solid legs and drawboard mortise and tenons, and none of those fancy but intimidating split dovetails from our French friend. A leg vice, a planing stop and a shelf, built from southern yellow pine with a laminated top. There's a saying that making something complex is simple, making something simple is complex. This bench has an incredible elegant simplicity to it. You can change things if you want to, but I'd suggest that if this is your first bench, don't. Unless you've got a very, very good reason. I'm a pointing case. I wanted to explore viceless work holding, and I'm glad I went the crochet route on my bench. I still think a leg vice is a better option. In my case, it's a compromise based on curiosity. If you're not trying to do something very specific for a very good reason, just build the anarchist bench. The plans are there, but the construction has been based around common thicknesses. This makes it very simple to use the construction lumber interchangeably on different parts of the bench. You don't have to order a range of different thickness stock like I did when I put my bench together. It's a clever, elegant approach. The details, the cutting list, the projections and the plans are all there. You're not going to need any other resource to build this bench, and for many of you, you could stop at this point in the book and just go build the thing. However, if you're new, or curious, or just looking to learn the odd new trick, keep on reading as Chris takes you through the construction with a thoroughness that no magazine article is ever going to match. Literally every element of the construction is documented in a thorough manner, so if you're nervous you can follow along and join Chris as he builds the bench from scratch. You'll learn what type of clamps to buy, what tolerances are good enough, and some really good hacks for keeping things aligned and leaving mortises in the right places. Chris's method is certainly quicker than spending hours becoming familiar with that pig sticker that you bought off eBay. There's not too much to say about this section. If you're familiar with the author's writing style, you won't be surprised to find out that this section, which, if you include the introduction and plans, is just under 100 pages long, is informative, it's supported by beautiful photos, it's full of tips and tricks, and it assumes very little, if any, prior knowledge. I guess that depending on your skill level, you might struggle with execution, but you certainly should not struggle with information. By the time you finish building your bench, there's one good weekend's worth of work left. Finish off the new addition to the shop with the essential appliances that you'll need to get the most out of the bench. Chris then concludes, and it's a conclusion that I think is worth reading. And at that point we're nominally at the end of the book, although there are some pretty decent appendices. The first of these answers some commonly asked questions. There are about 50 questions that pretty much cover everything I could think of. Just don't ask him which wood you should use to build your bench. There's some practical solutions for how you can make do without a workbench, and it's a section I kind of skimmed through, but I think there's some decent suggestions here. However, my problem is not about not having a workbench. It's about where I'd fit another one. Sadly, that's not covered in the book. Helpful tools are covered, and for the history buff, there's a timeline of the various workbenches. So where do I stand on the book? Let's recap quickly. It's published by Lost Art Press, written by Christopher Shores, and it's 335 pages long. It's the third and final book in the Anarchist series, 
And if you want to get a physical version to join the tool chest and the design book on your bookshelf, you need to make sure your pre-order is in, as there's a limited run on the paper version. And that will set you back $27 as at August 2020. The electronic book is free. So let's give a view on this book. I think that Chris set out to write the definitive workbench book for a beginner who was unsure about what to consider and what types were available and where to start. For the more seasoned woodworker, he's covered a lot of debates and topics in a simple explanatory style. If you're fascinated by the history, or a hybrid worker who's not sure about all those hand tool appliances, there's something in here for everyone. By taking you through the build, supplying the plans, and discussing the options, Chris gives you all you need to build the anarchist workbench of the title. If the book was only available at $27, I would still consider it as the best book to start the subject. I'd suggest that the electronic version is priceless. That's a better descriptor than free. And Chris, if you ever listen to this show, thank you for what you've done for us with this book. Thank you for writing a comprehensive guideline on a thorny topic suitable for both beginners and more experienced woodworkers alike. Thanks for showing me your philosophy, inspiring me with your example, and creating a publishing company that is arguably the model that any aspiring publisher should be following. In a world of small men and big corporate machines, thank you for showing us there's a different way. In a first for this podcast, I'm going to give Chris a 10 out of 10. That's it for now, Woodworms. And remember, go build something to last for your family on whichever workbench you have. And keep reading. If you'd like to support the show, you can find me on Patreon. If you've got any comments or suggestions, drop me an email at handtoolbookreview at gmail.com.